sometimes the wrong idea is just the wrong idea and you're better off being honest about it in the very early days and having that courage to say, we're doing the wrong thing and here's the reasons why and pivot. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, We've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we delve into the process of taking an idea from inception to incubation and into project stage and onto product launch with Chris Wolfe. Chris is Vice President of the Advanced Technologies Group in the office of the CTO at VMware. We hear how to avoid the pitfalls of making things nobody wants and how to speed up the process from customer demand to final delivery. That, plus some exciting new developments in the areas of machine learning and augmented and virtual reality. This is a really helpful episode for anyone wondering how the innovation process works at VMware. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you here. Thanks for the opportunity, Matthew. Looking forward to it. So um, can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? Yeah, sure. I uh, work in the VMware office of the CTO. I run our advanced group. Our primary charter is some three-year off-roadmap innovation. We have a number of different ways that we can drive innovation into the different R&D functions. And I I think drive might even be a poor word. Uh, It's really all about partnership at the end of the day with us. We do a lot of collaborative innovation with our customers, partners, and different R&D teams. So um, from a career perspective, how did you end up here? Well, it's been uh, pretty interesting. Sometimes I, I look back and I say to myself, I shouldn't be here. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. So I uh, was far more interested in my comedy routine than my academics in high school. And that led me to starting <laughs> uh, as a enlisted Marine uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps right out of high school. It took me about 10 years of secondary education to get up to a master's degree. I've had some different tech jobs along the way, always been passionate about innovation. Uh, that really started uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, inventing several different pieces of test equipment to some work in the virtualization in the very early days, back when I was in, in Commvault, at Commvault in the early 2000s, to uh, some stops as an analyst, and then eventually the past seven years at VMware. Wow, Okay. So, uh, so what was your first job in IT? My first job in IT was, uh, it's funny how things work out in the Marines where sometimes people ask for volunteers. And in, in my case, someone had come into our shop asking if anybody had any experience with personal computers and I raised my hand. So that led me to start doing desktop support as a secondary job in the Marines for our unit on the base. And that's, that's what got me started. And, um, I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer, but I realized that I kind of have a knack for this tech stuff, so I might as well just stick with it. So I'm a bit nervous um, that Brian's going to take the opportunity to get his own back today, given the questions I asked Bask on his behalf or not on his behalf a few episodes ago. So let's get on with it. Let's get into our deep dive. And and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So, Chris, previously, we've heard it said that VMware innovates across the company and that we look to both organic and inorganic innovation, be that through acquisition and stuff. Can you talk with us a bit about the charter of your group and your role in innovating at VMware? Yeah. So, you know, like I said in the intro, our official charter is sub three year off roadmap innovation. But in general, we're closer to sub 18 months. We do a lot of work in that 12 to 18 month time horizon, which uh I think it's really important because there's so much happening and so much change occurring in the industry today 
that we don't have to take out our crystal ball and continually try to guess what people might need in three years. We can innovate with a relative degree of certainty in terms of what folks are looking at really in the next year or two. And for us, that's translated into a focus on machine learning as an example. We have a high performance computing and machine learning program office as a part of the organization. We do a lot of work with server platforms and security as, as well. So these are areas such as uh, new hardware capabilities coming from Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA over the next several years and making sure our products can support them the day those new uh, hardware components are released. We have a program called X-Labs, which is our internal incubator. And uh, through X-Labs, we're able to first allow anybody at VMware with a great idea to participate in the innovation process. doesn't matter if you're in formal R&D or marketing or sales or anything. If you have a great idea, we're going to listen to it. We're going to vet it and we can staff the engineers to, to make that become a reality. So that's pretty exciting. We do this work in X-Labs through a partnership with our R&D teams. So we ensure that every project that we work on has a R&D sponsor in terms of product management and product engineering. And the reason that's important is it ensures that the incubation projects we run are already architecturally and code compatible with what is already shipping in their respective business units. That means we're not just graduating prototypes and declaring victory, but we're given our R&D teams code that they can very quickly integrate into product and ship, which uh, helps with the efficiencies in terms of how we do innovation. So that's a start. Let me just pause there. Hopefully that makes sense. So what do you mean by off-road map innovation? The existing uh, R&D business units in VMware, whether it's you know networking or storage or cloud platforms or management, they, they have their own product roadmaps and they're driving you know, organic innovation themselves. But oftentimes there's lots of new things that are coming that our R&D teams agree is important, but in the near term it might be what I like to call a strategic distraction. So they're strategic to the business unit, but there would be a short-term distraction to the engineers that are focusing on the priorities for this quarter. So for us, it's about doing things that are important to our R&D business units, but are not currently on their published roadmaps. And then for us, we figure that we have plenty of things that we can innovate. There's no shortage of things to work on. So once an R&D team is ready to accept something that we're working on, then we go ahead and gladly hand it off and then we move on to the next thing. Okay. So look, you know, we do obviously, we're talking here a lot about financial services. And I think there's a really big difference in the culture of financial services to tech companies around innovation and and really around, I'm going to say failure, fail fast, learn, try again, versus the kind of spend a lot of money, spend some more, give up, ding people's bonuses, fire a few people. And yeah, okay, might that might be a little bit more dramatic than reality, but so it maybe serves the point. But but you know, clearly we can't fail in every attempt every time. So, you know, what do you look for in these projects that, that you wish to try out and, and how do you measure success? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, to, to us, a project is not successful unless it is graduated and adopted into product, period. You know, there's lots of ways that people can manipulate metrics to say, well, we just sent this to open source. But just because you publish something on, say, a GitHub page doesn't actually make it a success, right? If there's no community around it, if there's no real adoption, then really was that project a success? I would say it wasn't. And that's okay, right? That's part of the innovation journey is you're going to take some chances. Some things will work out and some things won't. And that's important. But I, I think at the same time, you want to have this good balance. We work really hard to ensure, and this can certainly apply in the financial services industry, is a lot of our innovation work is done up front in that we pursue alignment with the lines of business, ensuring that there's a route to market through sales 
ensuring that we have the right architectural approach through engineering. And that, that process in itself could take several months to get that degree of alignment. And only after we have that is when we start coding the project. I think a lot of times with innovation, mistake that gets made is you just start running without having clear line of sight to what the destination is or should be and figure you'll figure it out along the way. And sometimes you do and you're successful, but a lot of times you don't. You're building something that nobody necessarily wants or needs or what you're building isn't exactly how they would like to have it. That effort of diligence is super important in my, in my opinion, and that's something that's applicable across all industries. So what's, what's exciting you in the X-Labs area right now, assuming you can talk about it? Yeah, there's a lot of things that I think are, are pretty exciting that we're working on. And if I was to break it down, our key innovation themes right now are around edge computing, modern applications. Uh, we're doing quite a bit with security, and we're doing quite a bit with machine learning. And if we were to take machine learning as an example, you could say a company like VMware could be a bit late to the game from an ML perspective. You look at the incumbents that are out there today, whether it's IBM or Google or AWS or Azure, all of which have you know, very uh, sound ML practices today. But there's an area of ML that's new, and I would say is really wide open, very opportunistic, which is federated machine learning. For those that aren't aware, federated ML is really about doing the training of your ML models where the data is physically created. So I'm not having to backfall data to a cloud data center or to an enterprise data center to start building models and training models, et cetera. So what does that, why does that matter to VMware? Well, we're in more than 400,000 plus enterprises today all around the world. And uh, our platform is distributed in nature. So it really makes FML an organic, natural way for us to proceed into the space. And the platform that we're working on from an ML perspective is fairly heterogeneous in that we can not just run organic ML models, but in addition to that, we provide a runtime for any type of third-party ML offering as well. So this makes it really easy for organizations to get training out to where the data is. And there's a lot of data sovereignty issues or security issues in which you don't necessarily want to ship data offsite to do any type of training or analytics with it. So being able to bring the intelligence to where the data is created, we think is going to be increasingly important for a lot of organizations going forward. Chris, just from my view, lots of companies talk about innovation and, and they all mean something slightly different when they use the term innovation. What's your view on our adoption and our desire to innovate? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. I think there's two different styles of innovation. There's what I would call incremental innovation. So that's taking something that you see right in front of you and thinking about how to make it better. And that's important, right? Sometimes that's about better scale, better security, a couple additional knobs that people might want. And, and you need to do those things because you're taking things that people are seeing and touching and you're continuing to grow their experience. It's just like every new iteration of iOS. You know, there's a lot of capabilities in iOS that just do small incremental improvements to the phone or to the user experience on the phone uh, with an Apple iPhone. But there's also times where there's disruptive innovation. And if I was to use the Apple analogy, I would say once you started getting into biometric authentication on an iPhone and that I can do everything with facial ID, that was fairly disruptive, right? It dramatically improved my user and customer experience in terms of interacting with the device. Now, if I was to take it to how do we do innovation, we do some incremental innovation but we take a slightly different approach. And, and I like to think that we always look to innovate and in how we innovate. So we have a, a, a team that we call ACE, which is our accelerated co-innovation engineering team. And what they do is they 
work with our field teams and, and sales and, and look to understand what are some of the capabilities that our customers want today that might be slowing down or holding up a particular sale. And for our R&D teams, those are often things that are already on their roadmaps, but they might be 12 to 18 months out before they can get around to them. So we have a team that can step in and do accelerated development of these things that customers want in our product today. And we do it so in partnership with our R&D teams. So the customer actually gets to define the look and feel of the feature. And we have a team that can go and fulfill this. So this isn't some type of one-off for a customer, like a services engagement. This is given the customer say and influence in how we build shipping code. Now, we also do this other work around uh, disruptive innovation. So some examples of that is certainly, I think federated machine learning is a pretty big disruptor, not something that we're doing in any kind of considerable scale in our products today. And most of our customers haven't really gone into those waters yet. Other areas is around uh, security as an example. So we're doing some pretty interesting things there in terms of working through modular cryptography, which we think is important. When people think about like crypto agility or modular ciphers, and certainly you think about this in the financial services sector, a lot of times quantum computing is what's getting all the attention. But if you think about this in the 12 to 18 month horizon, we probably don't have to worry about this massive disruption from quantum next year. But something that we do need is modular cryptography because we're, when we're doing business in different uh, regions of the world, there's often different local regulations when it comes to crypto. So giving customers the ability to be able to allow them to ingest a project or a product and uh, have a say in, in the crypto that's used in the product and how it looks and behaves, we think is an important differentiating capability that we should be doing today and we can be using today not having to worry about when we have to fully be there from a quantum readiness perspective. So hopefully that makes sense. Those are a couple of ways how we're doing like really off-road map, really more disruptive work, and then how we're also helping to aid in the evolution of the existing products that are uh, on the VMware truck today. No, that's, that's a great example in terms of how we adopt innovation and we drive innovation. I think the ACE, the Accelerated Co-Innovation Engineering Team, is something I'd just like to question. So that takes it all the way through into production, be that a feature or a capability. Are there any examples that you think are the, the standout examples for you where we've been successful in that space? Yeah, I can give you a, a recent one, actually. So we had a really large, important customer in the U.S. that was looking to upgrade to VMware Cloud Foundation and VMware vRealize Automation 8 for management. They saw one of the key requirements to being able to upgrade to VRA 8. So vRealize Automation would be VRA. And one of the key requirements was really well native integration with Puppet. That was one of the other tools that they used for, for enterprise management. And in our case, the native integration for Puppet just didn't exist in, in vRealize Automation. So this ACE team met with the customer, sat down to understand the existing requirements that the customer had, then started working with the product management teams in our cloud management business unit to ensure that this is a scalable use case. So we're not trying to innovate around like a one-off just to make one customer happy. If we're going to put something in a product, we want to ensure that this is something that a lot of customers really want and care about. And we saw that in this case. So we, we knew there were a lot of customers that were using these tools together. Just to give you an example of the timeline, we came to an agreement with the customer and they signed a statement of work in December of last year. Just last week, we announced the release of vRealize Automation 8.4, and that capability is in product. So we went from recognition with the customer in December to shipping product in March, which I think is quite remarkable just to show you know how quickly we can iterate through innovation depending on our customers' needs. Oh, wow. And those would be features that wouldn't make it onto the roadmap 
that fast, right? It's because you've got a paying customer or a co- or a part paying customer, right? Yeah, that's it. So it's the fact that we we had a customer that absolutely needed it, or they would not upgrade to the next version. That was one. It was something that was on the the roadmap of the business unit, but they were at least a year out from delivering that feature. And we had the right skilled engineers that can iterate and, and create this feature directly in the product very quickly. So that's it's it's the convergence of those things that's part of our vetting process that allowed all of that to happen. So how do customers engage with the ACE team? It's really pretty straightforward. So when I mean, there's something that's really important to you, whether it's a, a product capability or product integration that you absolutely cannot live without, or you want to make sure that the VMware timelines align to your innovation timelines, you can connect with your local VMware account team and ask them about it. So what we like to do is, uh, as we're doing new sales with customers, if when these requirements exist, we'll bake them into the existing sales. So it's just part of that sales cycle. We just get agreement on the fulfillment. And again, I think what's exciting from a customer perspective is you're not just having to consume a feature that a vendor is bestowing upon you, right? Which is often that that is the customer experience. You don't really get a, as that great of a say. This allows the customer to be deeply involved in the entire engineering process from weekly demos following sprints to different code reviews. They literally get to see how the feature is being crafted in real time and be a participant in that process, which is, again, I think it's a pretty special element of a new way of innovation partnership that we're driving at VMware. Thinking back to Labs again, then, are there any projects there that you're particularly proud of that have made it through into mainstream features, capabilities, or even products. So, you know, that's a little bit different from the stuff that we're doing with Ace, you know, something that's that's gone from being a, a great idea right the way through. Really excited about some of the disruptive work we're doing in security right now. Optimistic that the work we're doing in edge computing will be things that we can discuss by the end of the year. And those that are certainly on the fast track to product that I think is super exciting. So, so stay tuned there. If I was to look back over the past year, say, you know, what's pretty exciting that's come out of X Labs that's gone into product? It does some interesting work around cloud migrations, but I would probably put that in the incremental innovation bucket. A bit more disruptive, though, and certainly the interest has been accelerated by COVID, has been our project VXR, which is providing enterprise-grade features for VR and AR devices, which is uh, increasingly important to our customers. So we have a lot of customers today that are looking at AR and VR devices for use cases such as augmented training or augmented maintenance in particular. There's other enterprises that are looking to redefine how they have customer experiences and interact with customers. And the common thread in all of these cases is if you look at the landscape of AR and VR devices at large, there's no consistency in how I can manage, update, secure devices and really bring an enterprise type of experience uh, to these devices. And that's really important. So the work that we've been able to do through this project is provide single sign-on capabilities. So I can sign in using my regular corporate credentials, accessing an AR or VR device. I can get automatic dynamic access to all of the different corporate applications through that same experience. I can patch and update uh, those devices, ensuring that all of your corporate security and compliance mandates are met as well. So this is implemented through our Workspace ONE product. We have right now, I believe, 10 to 12 different customers that are in various different stages of pilot right now. And uh, these are quite large deployments in terms of organizations going very large with these new devices. In some cases, we're looking at the first wave of deployment is in the 10 to 12,000 range. So I think that one's a pretty exciting one. It's certainly 
we had been looking at AR and VR for different ways to meet, different ways to train, right? Different ways to ensure quality and, and how workers at different sites are, are performing. But COVID has, you know, created a greater em- emphasis on that in terms of being able to do more while also having some respect for physical distancing. So that's accelerated the timeline of demand. And we were able to really get to a really good refined scope with that project so that we can get it into our end user computing business unit and then get it into customers uh, really this year. So that that one is, I think, one to watch and, and one that I'm, I'm especially proud of. So AR, VXR. Uh, so what's the use case there? That's not just, you know, playing games on, on stuff. You said it's, you know, enterprise-grade stuff. So, so what are the use cases? Yeah, one of them, I can tell you, we have a, one of the largest customers we have is in the oil and gas industry. And they've been looking at ways to train their oil platform workers and, and to be able to do so more efficiently. And also being able to do so where they can fully monitor and instrument the entire training process. So with augmented reality, they're able to do that. Uh, they're able to find things on the physical platform, even in terms of uh, some of the mechanical systems that are being assisted through the augmented reality goggles. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good example. They're definitely one of the most innovative organizations that we're working with in this space. And we see others, even internally at VMware, to give you the VMware example, we're running an app called Meet in VR, and it, it allows the VMware employees with a virtual reality headset to join a virtual meeting. And you might say, well, is that kind of gimmicky? And certainly there's aspects of it that I would agree are, but what's different is like right now you do X amount of Zoom meetings a day and you still cognitively, your brain is telling you you're just on a video call. When you're in a VR meeting room, Like we have emulated rooms now in the VMware campus that are rooms I've physically been in. So when you're wearing that headset and you're seeing a room that feels familiar to you and you can look to your left and right and people are sitting next to you and you can stand up and go to a whiteboard and whiteboard together. Cognitively, it gives you a different experience. It further immerses you into the meeting. It makes it really impossible for you to multitask. And and it is another way of connecting with your peers. We're certainly in the early days. But I can tell you, I had also attended, just to give an example where I didn't think it went as well, uh, one of our partners, they had uh, provided VR headsets for one of their conferences last year. And I attended their conference using VR. And the difference was compared to like this meet and VR app that VMware is using. I'm in this conference hall, I'm watching the keynote presentation. I look to my left, I look to my right, and I'm all alone. So it was that opposite cognitive feel, like it's just me in here, right? It, it could have just been a Zoom at that point. It didn't really achieve the purpose. So, you know, there's work to happen. And where I think this really takes off, my experience in VR over the last couple of years has taught me that we don't have the equivalent of PowerPoint for VR. And, and what I mean by that is PowerPoint made it really easy for anybody, right? A layperson to be able to create some fairly dynamic content and do an interesting presentation using some form of digital media. In in virtual reality, you literally have a 360 degree panorama. You have three dimensional views. You can do so much more from a content creation perspective, but we haven't gotten to the point where there's that killer app that can make it really easy for you to make that AR and VR content, right? To really bring it mainstream to the masses. And I think once we start to see good examples of that, that's when this technology will really start to take off. It sounds very interesting. So, so oh, hang on. I just want to take us back a bit because I'm really interested in this, not least because I really want to see Matthew in a VR headset with emojis popping out the top of his head <laughs> and memes. That would be really cool, Matthew. 
I'm just thinking of things well, I can do. Uh, it's me thinking after this, right? I need to have a word with Chris about how I can justify getting one. And now you've just like yeah, learned yeah, that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris, uh, why would that not happen? Because who'd have said 18 months, two years ago that we would hold every meeting we do on Zoom, right? You know, that, you know, so, so it's not beyond the realms of any imagination. In, in meeting, you know, we're obviously covering from, uh, from a financial services uh, perspective and, and most of the listeners will be listening because of, of that what sort of things are you seeing in your conversations with financial services clients are there any trends or anything that's really picking your interest yeah i think uh certainly when you think about that 3d panorama and having access to just infinite number of screens to work with right through a single headset for interacting with various trading systems, that starts to get interesting. The security aspects have also been interesting in financial services. Once I'm in a virtual reality environment, nobody can see my screen. There is no chance of shoulder surfing. There's no chance of, of any of that. So that is also what, what I've seen is interesting. There's more work around improving customer experience, but the way to think about this, especially with augmented reality, is every customer of pretty much every bank today already has an augmented reality device. It's their phone. And through your phone and your phone camera, you can start to do some pretty intelligent things in terms of identification, helping people navigate to different places, find different things, be able to just do some virtual assistance for them overlaid with what they're seeing in their physical environment. And that's an area that I would expect augmented reality to really start to take off because the device is already there in terms of iOS and Android for folks. And, and that's where I think we'll see even more innovation. But the security around it is something that I see as being super important, whether it's being able to verify customer credentials or, again, provide secure access to different types of information. Those are all, I would say, important use cases. And again, that VR experience with these multitude of screens that I can very quickly interact with is great, but it's not going to be mainstream until people can be comfortable wearing a headset for several hours at a time. And, and most people just aren't today. So I would expect more augmented reality to help us and assist us first. And then, you know, maybe as the technology continues to improve, we'll get further immersed into virtual reality, at least for everyday work life. And what about investment profiles, both within FS and generally? Have you seen those slow down over the past 12, 18 months and expecting those to pick up, move in the opposite direction. So are you talking investment specifically around AR and VR? Uh, no, just innovation, just putting your customer's appetite to know. Oh, yeah. No, I'd say you know, innovation in general, it's been pretty interesting, right? It's uh, And I, I meet with a lot of financial services organizations. And for a lot of my peers that are doing running different innovation teams in financial services, we all kind of started to have the same, I wouldn't call it a joke, that's not appropriate, but the same way of thinking about solicitations come last summer, where there was just utter exhaustion at people trying to approach you, telling you how they were going to solve your business continuity problems. And it's like, if we didn't figure out how to reboot our organization by the summer with all of these shutdowns for COVID, businesses were in severe jeopardy at that point. They, they had to figure it out by then, and they did. And what that meant was, it was there was this time like, okay, we had to really solve this business continuity problem and feel good about it and, and move on with our business. And there was you know, lots of different challenges to very unique to, I'd say, each different organization. But what came after that was this new wave that really started, I would say, in the second half of last year, where organizations were saying, you know what, from a continuity perspective, we're good. The world is going to remain fundamentally different for X number of years. We don't know how many years. Things may never actually be the same as they were pre-COVID. 
So therefore, we have to start innovating today to start to drive new differentiation for our businesses with the expectation right, of, of a greater remote workforce, uh, more distant uh, customer experiences, and so on. So I would say that that innovation wave actually started July, August of last year and is really hitting full steam coming into this year. So, Chris, you've covered their X Labs and you've covered ACE. What else do you do in ATG? Yeah, so I mentioned our machine learning program office already, which drives uh, consistency in how we approach uh, machine learning across all different R&D teams at VMware. That's super important work that's uh, both technical and non-technical. Another big part of the organization is our field programs. So another area where we think we're really different from many other vendors in the space, like a lot of folks, we constantly obsess over what we're not thinking about. We're continually looking to calibrate, uh, recalibrate our ideas and, and vet our thinking. And what's one of our secret weapons is our field programs. We have GOCTOs, so uh, folks such as Joe Bagley in the EMEA region and Guru Venkatachalam in the APJ region. Uh, and beyond that, we have uh, a group that we call our field principals and our CTO ambassadors. And this is collectively about 200 of the top technical field leaders across VMware globally. So this is a, a field in the, I'd say, roughly 20,000 employees. We have 200 of them that uh, we, we say are really the best of the very best. And what's important about them is they are every day working hand in hand with our customers in terms of solving their problems. So we're able to take any idea, anything that we're even thinking about in terms of early stage innovation or incubation through our CTO ambassadors, get connected directly to customers that are having the same problems, and then look at enlisting those customers as design partners to continually innovate on the work we're doing. Or, and, and the reason that that's important is we really, just like all tech vendors, you want to have more uh, successes than failures, right? So having that continual calibration with our customers through programs like CTO ambassadors and through leaders such as our field principals ensures that what we're bringing to market is truly aligned to customer interest. And this is an iterative process that's happening throughout the entire cycle of product development. You know, in addition, of course, to getting that type of feedback for things we're not doing well with our existing products. And that's that drives that incremental in innovation that I was talking about earlier. One last question before we move on. ATG is obviously a significant part of the office of the CTO. So what does the research group do? Yeah, the research group is a great partner of my team, the Advanced Technology Group. And while we're chartered with that sub three-year horizon, they're really looking at three plus years out. And in their case, this is uh, th these are things like National Science Foundation grants and partnerships with academia, really looking to fund areas that might not be uh, mainstream for some period of time. You know, an example of that is our blockchain product, which came out of the research group initially. So they were very early on. They had some uh, new ways to drive more efficient algorithms that we saw as uh, really important for helping to scale blockchain and also helping to reduce the carbon footprint of blockchain solutions. And that's technology that we've since open sourced as uh, Project Concourse, or Concourse, excuse me. And uh, you know, since then, we've seen good growth. That's something that's now productized and, and is now being deployed through you know, various organizations, including multiple organizations in financial services today. Okay, great. Very, very interesting. So let's, um, let's change gears now and get you to make your prediction in our crystal ball section. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. 
Chris, this is the time that you get to to place the bets on on the on your view on what's coming. So, what do you think will be one of the most significant game changing technologies or technology for this year and into next? And and how do you think that will help or hinder specifically the financial services industry? Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about security because this is certainly close to heart for folks in financial services. I think the work we're doing around modular cryptography is super important. There's additional work we're doing in an area we call rogue asset detection. And why that matters is when you look at whether it's uh, take branch institutions, for example, you don't always have full control in terms of what's being connected to those networks. Sometimes it's a local line of business or a branch manager that's making decisions irrespective of IT and sometimes irrespective of corporate policy. It's people just trying to solve problems in their locales, right? This happens across all industries. And the result of it is at the end of the day, there's often lots of things connecting to networks that IT has no administrative access to. It's there, but they don't really know what to do with it and they can't control it. And there's always been this huge tug of war about, well, IT just needs to gain control of everything. But if anything, people should be just accepting the fact that it's just not practical today. There's too many innovations that are being sold directly to lines of business. And those lines of business are under pressure to grow their businesses and be successful. So they don't always just want to partner directly with IT or get IT's permission before they do things. So things are just happening too quickly. That traditional model of trying to bet everything through IT just doesn't scale. And we want to get there at some point. But in reality, you just can't always try to create barriers for your lines of business to innovate. So how does this tie into rogue asset detection? It ties in because what we want to be able to do is be able to quickly discover new systems and not shut them down, but make them more secure, even though we don't have any admin access to them. And, and that's, that is, is super innovative and something that I think is going to be really important for a lot of organizations. When we talk even outside of financial services, there's organizations that have, in some cases, zero control of the technologies that are being deployed at their edge sites. They have no control whatsoever. It's 100% line of business. So how can you expect some degree of chaos? Instead of just trying to force outright control, I need to design systems with the expectation of some chaos and just accept it. So if we start to discover these rogue systems and now dynamically place east-west firewalling around them to protect my other corporate systems and protect them as well in a way that is non-intrusive to them, non-intrusive to my lines of business, right? that's allowing your business to work with far more velocity and agility and doing it in a way that's much safer than you have in the past. So that's an area that I'm really excited about. Hopefully come the VMworld timeframe, we'll be talking much more about that in depth. But yeah, we're doing a lot in security. And again, we, we have to think more dynamically because the threats we face are, are super dynamic, right? So the solutions to solving these problems and in terms of a constantly evolving, highly dynamic security threat is my solutions need to be more dynamic than the threats we face. And that's what we're working on. So we had Tom Kellerman on last week recording his podcast. And I think you've summarized and echoed you know, a lot that Tom came, Tom was talking about in terms of the increasing nature of the threats, the dynamic uh, nature of them and the velocity of those threats. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Yeah, seems very joined up, right? Uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, oh, well, there's a need. There's a need. Uh, so I, you know, I think um, this is an area where in FS, obviously, the regulator looking over the shoulders, you can't afford a failure. The business needs to make them more agile, and so there's like an opening things up, yet still controlling. So this this feels like it's a very much of a allowing one whilst not taking your eye off the other, right? 
That's it. We, we, in IT, we need to be less idealistic and more pragmatic at the end of the day. And this is a means to that end. Let's kind of get into our last section. We'll have a little bit of fun and prepare yourself. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so this is our lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. We're going to try and get through as many questions as we can in the time, and you can pass if there's something you just don't want to answer. But we'll remember those and get you another time. So let's make a start. Uh, favorite book? My favorite book, I would say it's my still my favorite book is Born to Run, hands hands down. It uh, really got me to understand running and and uh, my passion for running, and it's just wrapped around just a fantastic adventure, starring actually one of my favorite ultra distance runners, which is Scott Jurek. The first concert you saw. Well, this will date me, but hey, still still a fantastic band. It would be REM. There you go. A favorite one-day getaway location? I would say it could be a mountain really anywhere with a nice pond where I can fish and just take in some views, just peace and quiet. Plenty of acreage, so it's just quiet and undisturbed. That's that's my piece. I think this is a, a similar question, but maybe slightly more expansive. What's the your favorite place of all the places you've traveled to? My favorite city, I think, of all time is, I would probably say it's Prague. Prague is just, it's just an incredible city. It's a great city to walk. There's so much history and culture and art. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, I, I've, I've been there now four or five times, I think. And I go back in a heartbeat. It's a fantastic city. Well, that will make Lenka, who is obviously behind the scenes and makes all this possible, very, very happy to hear. All right, let's go a little less serious. Cat or dog? Dog. Boat, train or plane? Boat. Tea or coffee? Coffee. The last time you used cash and what for? <laughs> it's funny because uh, I had to use cash this weekend and I wasn't even sure if I had cash in my wallet, but uh, luckily I did. And the reason was we were at a convenience store getting uh, some breakfast for the kids. We were heading out. Their credit card processing systems were down, so it was cash only. So I had to look and I'm like, wow, do I even have cash? And lo and behold, I did. Who's your mentor or that you uh, have been most inspired by? Wow, most inspired by. Yeah, I, I get inspiration from a lot of people. I've had Framed Ebony Magazine featuring Martin Luther King. That's in my office. I look at it every day. I get a lot of inspiration from MLK. There's been lots of different people at work that's been super important to me in my career. One of my uh, uh, first managers when I worked at Commvault Systems, this is going back now uh, almost uh, 20 years. It's about 20 years since I left there was a man named Mike Dahlmeyer. And um, he caught me, I was kind of young in my career. And I did some work that was more or less just checking the box and wasn't my best work. And he completely called me out on it. And I'm grateful to this day that he did because it was one of the defining moments in my life where um, I was upset at first, which is always a good thing, because that means the feedback is really on point, I think. And um, when I did some reflection, I realized, you know what, if you're going to put in the effort, put in your best. And from that moment forward, for the last 20 years, everything I've done has been my very best. And if it means that it takes a day longer to get something done, then it takes a day longer because I refuse to do anything short of my best. That's just uh, it's been a guiding principle ever since that point. Favorite gadget or piece of technology? Oh, wow. I, I definitely tinker with a lot of things. I, I own a Jeep Wrangler, so I am always doing something different to customize it because they're just incredible vehicles to work on. But I would have to say my, my Garmin Forerunner watch is probably my favorite piece of tech. It was life-saving when I used to travel because it has a built-in GPS where I can literally see 
uh, a map of where I've run and I can retrace my steps back by just simply looking at the map on my wrist, which is huge. So it's something I interact with every day. It's a great device. And I had switched from the Apple Watch to the Garmin because the Apple Watch had lots of interesting apps on it, but it really wasn't that great of a running watch as far as I was concerned. And the, the Garmin user experience and features are just, they deliver what I need. And it's definitely some tech that I use every day. Edge or cloud? Oh boy, come on. I'm, I'm probably a bit of an edge zealot. I've been uh, working on edge for the better part of the last five years now. And it's, it's nice seeing things really come into fruition. And I would say there's another area now as edge is starting to shape up that people are not looking at which is that area that sits between the cloud and the edge, which is often exposed through regional points of presence through telcos or cloud providers, where I think there's going to be a lot of innovation happening in that space. Because while you know we can land a lot of different equipment and do things out at the edge, uh, at the end of the day, that doing so does create new challenges in terms of scale. The more, more that I can centrally locate technology means that's the less places and things that I necessarily have to patch and update. And it, it gives me greater scale and how I can bring new capabilities to, to more people. So I think as we see 5G and next generation networks further mature, then that space, that in-between space becomes even more critical. You have to sing karaoke. What song do you pick? I am I am not the best singer, I'll tell you that. You don't want me singing ACDC because I would probably make your ears bleed. Uh, <laughs> I might have to go with just something basic like American Pie. Oh, oh, there you go. Come on. It's a John Lennon tribute, right? There's a lot of great history in that song. You might have already answered this, but um, what are you most excited for about the future of financial services and technology? It's really the customer experience. You know, it's for me, it's probably just basic things. It's how I'm interacting. It's how I'm learning. I think it's... uh, You know, financial services is getting much better in terms of even guiding individuals from an investment perspective. So you can really take ownership of your assets and investments and get very good advice from your preferred financial services institutions. And I think that's important. That work is really helping to further democratize uh, how people look at financial uh, services and their relationship with their financial services advisors and how they're managing their own assets. Uh, So maybe that's a bit mundane. But I think for the democratization of investing and investments is, I think, really important in terms of being a future global trend going forward. What piece of career advice do you wish you had given your younger self? I think two things uh, that have guided me is be authentic. Do your job the way it represents you and your personality. Don't feel that you have to be somebody else's interpretation of how a job is supposed to happen because you don't. People are hired uh, because of their individuality and their personality, and you, you want to be able to express yourself through your work. So your authenticity, uh, your integrity is right up there. Your, your word is going to be your word, period. And misrepresenting yourself or your company, that will follow you the rest of your career, no matter how many times you try to change jobs and run from it. You can't. So uh, don't do it, right? Your integrity is, is everything. And um, finally, again, it's pride in the work that you do. Don't take shortcuts. If something's going to take longer, then be okay saying that it's going to take longer. And when you're wrong, don't be afraid to admit it. You know, especially in innovation, people get worried that they're going to lose their jobs and they, they stay on a project that should have been killed sometimes a month or a year ago because they're afraid of the consequences on their bonus or whatever and feel that things just have to succeed. Sometimes the wrong idea is just the wrong idea and you're better off being honest about it in the very early days and having that courage to say, 
we're doing the wrong thing and here's the reasons why and pivot. So I'd say it's those uh, traits. Uh, maybe it's just not one piece of career advice, but it's a few things. But those are uh, really important guiding principles for me. Excellent. There is the there is the all important. If you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be? Uh, mint chocolate chip. You know, you, you look at me on the surface and it's like, oh, man, that's kind of bright green. I don't even know if I even want to go down this path. <laughs> you know, you, you take a taste. You're like, all right, this is uh, there's some character here. There's a little complexity. Let me take another bite. <laughs> it worries me that you know so much about how you would be an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I give so much thought to that, Brian. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no I, it's good. It's very good. I'm, I'm still after. I think this is our fifth attempt. I'm still not quite worked out what ice cream I would be. But there you go. <clears throat> right. Okay. That that is fabulous. Thank you, Chris, for your time today. It's been very, very interesting. Thank you. Well, I think I think everybody's learned a lot from that today. Always a pleasure. Best podcast of the year for me. So thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Brian. To keep up with Chris and the latest in VMware's off roadmap innovation, the best way is to follow him on Twitter at C.S. Wolf, Or you can follow him or connect with him via LinkedIn. Just look for Chris Wolf at VMware. We'll have the links in our show notes. If we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can also find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or even wish to join us as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.